Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. I'm your host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. Today, we are finishing season one with Funeral at 50 Mile. Woohoo! <laughs> was that a woohoo for the season one finale or for the episode or what? It was a woohoo that we have kept this going for 20 odd episodes. Yeah, we've been recording this. I was I was uh, coming here to where I record today in just a light jacket and I was thinking about how it wasn't that long ago, but we recorded in a blizzard and we've recorded in the fall and we've been doing this a long time I know. now. Well, we have, once we are in the summer, we'll have done all four seasons. Yeah. So this concludes season one, and in many ways, it concludes season one on a really down note. Teach, do you want to give a quick summary of the episode? So in this episode, and as is common practice with Murder, She Wrote, JP goes to a funeral, and in this case, it's a friend of hers who lives in Wyoming, and whose daughter obviously is supposed to inherit the property, but as it turns out, he has willed it to a ne'er-do-well named Carl, and... As the episode proceeds, he shows himself to be a, if you pardon my uh, expression, jackass, because he is a total jackass. And then, during a storm, he ends up hanged in the barn, as one does. As one does? Wait, wait, wait. As one does? Yeah, you know, if you're an asshole in the West, you would get hanged in the barn. It's kind of like, you know, it's the Western way, I guess. As the one character says, they used to, how how does he put it? They used to mount dead coyotes and wolves to scare off other rampaging varmints or something like that. I can't remember the exact turn of phrase, but, you know, clearly a a thinly veiled violent uh, way of the West, as it were. And so Jessica, you know, has to set out to see who did it. And as it turns out, she uncovers a truly traumatic story, arguably one of the darkest storylines I think we've seen this season. As it turns out, Carl, the, the murder victim, had actually raped the wife of the dead man, the one who Jessica is attending his funeral. And thus, that man's daughter, Mary, is not actually his daughter, hence the disinheriting of her in favor of Carl, who is now, who was slated to inherit the property. Well, yeah, we, I mean, you should add that, like, the the disinheriting wasn't because the dad didn't love her. He absolutely loved Mary and raised her as his daughter um, because the wife died in childbirth, but it was that Carl was blackmailing him into giving the property over to him. And so in the dark twist... Um, his attorney and doctor and friend and brother team up to actually lynch Carl and kill him together collectively, which Jessica fi- Jessica finally figures out when it doesn't seem like the murder could have been any possible person. She figures out it's because it was all four of them. It's a very murder on the Orient Express kind of turn. Yeah, it is. The idea that something something horrible has happened and so these people who've witnessed it many years ago scheme together to kill the person when the law doesn't um i really enjoyed this episode i mean enjoyed in the sense that i thought it was a very sophisticated episode and very adult episode and dealt with some really dark 
thematic material. And as we've noted here before on Cabot Cup Gazette, I actually really enjoy those episodes because I think it really helps us understand and really appreciate the willingness of a show like Murder, She Wrote to, you know, to explore some territory that is not always, you know, one would assume a show like Murder, She Wrote would explore. To hear the R word, like, just, just so bluntly stated... That stood out. That stood out to me too. That we there is no euphemism used here. Um, they actually say the word rape. There's no. There, and they actually say the word lynch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really clear that something really horrible has happened to this community, and they're not. They don't. You know, skirt around it at all. So I mean, what struck me, you know, maybe sort of stepping back to a little bit toward the beginning, is that the episode, although it begins with a funeral, quickly becomes a little bit lighter in tone because we have obviously Carl comes across as kind of a buffoonish, like I said, you know, not particularly like nice character, but his wife, or as it turns out, not wife, is sort of a trampy kind of character. Like she's coded that way. I use that language advisedly. Like that's the kind of stereotype they're using of the tramp because she dresses in loud clothing. She, you know, has, she's a very loud and unruly kind of woman. And so that offers a kind of comedic overtone that, you know, as we lead up to this finale and this climax is, you know, sort of jettisoned in favor of that much darker, more sinister storyline. Yeah, she, Sally uh, arm wrestles. So she's, an uh, unruly woman is a good way to describe her. Can you briefly explain what that term means in like film and media studies? I will. So some time ago, um, Kathleen Rowe, now Kathleen Rowe Carlin, I believe is the name she goes by professionally. None of that is necessary to tell people. Anyway, if they want to look up her work, they need to make sure they have the right name. (laughs) So she wrote a book called The Unruly Woman, um, exploring in popular film and television the figure of this, well, The Unruly Woman. So she loses character studies like Miss Piggy and Roseanne. And so The Unruly Woman sort of subverts the expectations of patriarchy by fighting back against it. So by being loud, often by being overweight, by eating a lot, by, you know, taking men to task. So it's a very common figure, both in terms of like Western literature, but also within popular culture more recently. That sounds so much like Sally. I mean, she's a, she's an arm wrestler. She makes bets with guys. She talks loud. She calls the, she calls Mary, she calls her orphan Annie, (laughs) calls a young woman who has just dealt with the loss of her father, orphan Annie. So Definitely not the most sympathetic of characters, but is nevertheless a a note of like levity that I think is interesting, as is, I should point out, and this is what I was getting at, uh, Sheriff Ed Potts, arguably one of the most ridiculous characters in this episode, who serves a function of kind of like, maybe I just have Shakespeare on the mind because I just saw the Northman, but he's kind of like the fool character in a Shakespeare play. Like he kind of adds that layer of absurdity to an otherwise very stark and very, you know, tragic drama. And he has this line to... You know, because he's talking with Jessica about her books. And he's like, well, you know, you're not bad for a a lady mystery novelist. But personally, I prefer Mickey Spillane. (laughs) She says something to the effect of, well, we're all laboring under Mickey's shadow, I believe is what she says. (laughs) She's, yeah, she's, she handles that so nicely. I mean, it's a twofold insult. One, it's like, it's not bad for a woman. And then two, it's like, I really like this other writer better. I mean, because Mickey Spillane's not even a mur- I mean, it's he's a, a pulpy, like, film, like, noir writer, not a mystery novelist per se. It's a, it's a lovely little grace note, though, if, if you know the history of this particular genre. So I loved that. And, the, and this guy who's the sheriff, um, Jessica's told, like, oh, you should call him Marshall because he has this sort of Western fantasy. I mean, he really wants to be living in high noon. He talks about, like, wanting, a quick, wanting a quick draw. And, and he's really a buffoon. Yes. 
And so what is great about that whole exchange and every exchange she has thereafter is she's so shrewd at manipulating him. Like she basically is the puppet master to him. Like anytime she wants him to do what she wants, she's like, well, I believe, Sheriff, you were just getting ready to ask where we all were. <laughs> or sorry, Marshall. I believe, Marshall, you were wondering where. So I don't know. I loved that whole exchange. I love the way she manipulates him and she it's so skilled and it's so generous on her part because obviously this guy has no idea what he's doing. We're told there's never there hasn't been a murder here in like years. He has no idea what he's doing and he's a total dope and she just like sort of very skillfully, very gracefully leads him through this um, investigation. It makes him makes it seem like everything was his idea in the first place. I mean, it's re- it's really funnily done. It is. I, I, so I, I love those two characters, so Sally and the Marshal, as the sort of, you know, they help us to laugh a little bit in what is otherwise, you know, a very sinister episode. Because as soon as we find out that Carl's been murdered, we see him actually hanging. Like, that was, the, as I was watching the episode, I was like, oh my god, are we going to see this body hanging? I was like, surely they're not going to, like, yep, there it is. Usually when you see a person who's been hanged in film and media you see the feet um partly because what actually happens to the head is really grotesque and horrifying and obviously you don't do that to a live actor and so it would either read as like either you would have a fake head and it would be horrifying to the audience or you would um, use a live actor and it wouldn't look dead in this case we start with the feet the sort of classic shot and they actually did pan up his body so that we see his face and we see him hanging there um, which is part of like the horror of this, right? We don't usually, we see dead bodies in Murder, She Wrote, but they don't usually linger on them. Mm-hmm. And they really want us to feel, multiple times actually we see Carl hanging. Um, they want us to feel like sort of the horror of his death. Uh-huh. I mean, because what it turns out, I mean, the doctor claims that it broke his neck, like which of course is the most like, quote unquote, humane way of hanging. But even so, it's not exactly the way that you would like. To. If you're going to be murdered, I don't think that hanging is in the top five ways to be murdered. Like, in terms of what you would like to happen, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So it actually turns out that he wasn't really murdered. So the guys had long ago, after the rape happened, when they first learned about it, they had actually tried to lynch him. They were stopped by Jack, our dead father figure, um, and this guy Carl escaped town. But he's come back now to sort of hold over on Jack that uh, Mary is not his daughter. And that's how he's manipulated Jack into signing a will over to him. Because Jack doesn't want Mary to know this truth. It's a horrifying truth, right? And so this time when they, they try to lynch him again, they get him on a horseback and they put a noose around his neck. And what happens is that there's a storm going on at that time. And a lightning strikes and the horse bucks. And that causes him to be strangled in the noose. So they didn't actually kill him. Right. Right? They've done something horrible, but they yeah. weren't actually responsible for the moment of death. Right. It's an act of God, I believe, is how they frame it to themselves. And even how I think Jessica, to some degree, also says it. Because she says something to the effect of, like, you, didn't, you may not have murdered him, but you're still responsible for the death. Yeah, definitely. And they do agree that they will turn themselves in under the condition that Jessica and presumably whatever story they tell the police, um, that they don't want Mary to ever know why this has happened. And they don't want her to know that Jack isn't her father and that she's the product Mm -hmm. of rape. They want her to continue believing that she had these very loving parents and she was the product of that love. Which is actually, 
it's really humane and it's really sweet the way these guys rally around her as like sort of surrogate father figures. And I think Jessica agrees. You know, she says, look, she's she's had enough pain in her life. I, I agree with you. I won't I won't say anything. Yeah. So, you know, last week when we were talking about murder at the Oasis, I made the, you know, the comment that the, obviously the sort of generic illusion that this show is making is to like mater- the maternal melodramas of the 50s and it seems to me that what this one is doing is clearly referring to like we could maybe call them like the gothic westerns or the revisionist westerns like that we see from uh nicholas ray and like johnny guitar or the some of the you know more spaghetti westerns all of which have an edge to them or at least a darkness that admittedly is always there in the western as a genre since it's all about colonialism and like people being awful and monstrous things happening and it, it's clearly that that's the sort of intertext that we're looking at here because we have obviously the you know the sordid deeply tragic you know family trauma and also the that is intertwining with this narrative of revenge like this that's very particular to the american west and like its way of envisioning how justice works that justice doesn't necessarily flow through the organizations and institutions of the state, but instead through personal vendetta. Yeah, and it and and the fact that they use the term lynch uh, was really compelling to me in that case because, of course, lynchings are usually extrajudicial killings, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the history of lynching in the United States, we usually think about in the South, and we usually think about uh, white people lynching black people mm-hmm. as a means to maintaining white supremacy. This was a case of white-on-white lynching, which is much rarer. Um, And I actually don't know much about the history of white-on-white lynching. I found a couple of academic articles, but, you know, there's not much written about that because we are so interested, I think, in that that pervasive racist legacy of lynching. Right. But it was fascinating to me that they used the term lynching Mm -hmm. And that they were very much thinking of this as something that takes place outside of the law, that the Mm -hmm. law has failed in this case. And so it becomes incumbent upon them to ensure that justice is served. Right. So, you know, here as, you know, I use the word vendetta, but it's also vigilantism in particular that like, you know, and it's that in that in that case, like the remark that they used to pin up the bodies of coyotes and wolves to serve as a warning, you know, is a sinister one, but also very much in keeping with the Western tone of the story and the sense that mm-hmm. the West, since it takes place in Wyoming, you know, has a different code of how things are done. And obviously in the case of the, the marshal slash sheriff, it's absurd, but it also has a darker strain to it when it comes to implementing justice of a sort. You mean because his buffoonery underneath that is an incompetence. And so he can't be trusted. So that's why people have to take the law into their own hands. Mm-hmm. We should explain that, like, in um, genre studies of literature and film, when we think about what the Western is, usually genre scholars break it down into that sense of duality between law and order or law and chaos, right? The the civilization and the frontier colliding in that duality. And so the ideas that TJ is talking about of, like, vigilantism and, like, retributive justice becomes really important to a place the idea is that it's out in this untamed wilderness, right? That needs to be tamed somehow. Mm-hmm. And so that, in that sense, I'm left slightly unsettled, more actually more than slightly unsettled by the ending. In much the same way I was several, you know, way back in the early days when we were talking about the secretary and or Jessica's sec- secretary who left us unsettled at the end of the, that one episode. Lovers and other killers. 
lovers and other killers. So in, this one obviously is a little more somber than disturbing, but it is nevertheless one of those moments where Jessica is obviously the voice of reason and the voice of justice and the jo- voice of like, this is how the of moral authority. But when they walk out of the barn together, you don't necessarily feel like, well, I'm sorry that Carl's dead because we're not because he's a monster. <laughs> like he's not just a rapist, but a blackmailer and someone who has destroyed lives with absolute impunity. And so we don't necessarily want to see these men punished, but they've also are, as Jessica rightly points out, are responsible. So it kind of leaves us in a very like morally gray area. An ambiguous place, right? Which maybe explains why this is one of the few episodes where we don't get that final shot of, we don't get like a little epilogue scene of everybody happy and now Jessica's going home and blah, 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 life will go on. And we don't get that final shot of Jessica laughing as a close-up. Instead, we get it what actually looks like a Western, right? It's mm-hmm. like people walking out of the barn into the sunset. And the episode just kind of freeze frames there. So there's there's no sense of like, okay, everything's fine now. Yeah. Which has been so important to Murder, She Wrote, episode after episode. Here we get a sense of there is no real closure. Right. Everything's not fine. I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, obviously... Mary's life is still a shambles because her father is still dead. And I mean, presumably she'll get the property anyway, because as it turns out, Sally's intention to inherit through Carl is flawed because they're not actually married. So therefore she, her whole plan falls apart, which is, you know, a nice little bit of justice for trying to do some shady business dealing. But also, you know, one can't help but feel a little sorry for Sally, even so. Oh, I feel totally sorry for Sally because I don't I don't know that Sally knows that Carl is a monster. Right. I don't think so either. We don't really have any evidence of that. I think she just like liked Carl and they were lovers and he took her on this whirlwind joyride in their RV to somewhere in Wyoming where he's going to get them rich. Uh, and he ends up dead. She's alone. She has nothing. She doesn't get the property. She doesn't get anything. You know, right. Sally really really suffers i think and although i would think the episode maybe wants us to not feel sorry for her i mean i feel sorry for her but i'm not sure the episode wants us to feel sorry for her since it goes out of its yeah i i don't think the episode makes her a tragic figure i guess i just i don't think that um right because like she's kind of bad yeah. but it's also but she's not like really villainous she's right. just kind of a victim of circumstance in a way i think yeah she's just not exceptionally likable Yes, exactly. She's like, to, to, not to strain the Shakespeare too much, but she's like, uh, what's his name, Malvolo in Twelfth Night? Like, she's kind of a buffoonish character herself, who is villainous, but not necessarily like a monster like, like Carl obviously is. I'm not sure, like, I have Shakespeare on the mind. Yeah, maybe don't, maybe don't, you do have Shakespeare on the mind today, don't you? Maybe don't be rude to someone whose dad has just died and been buried <laughs> that morning. Maybe that would make us all a little more sympathetic to what you've been through, is right. all I'm saying. Yes. So I like this moral ambiguity of this episode and that it does kind of venture into this fraught territory that I think is very relevant today. Like, it's one of those episodes that I feel like has a lot of resonance given that we live in, like, the Me Too era. Like, I think that that's one of the things that makes it hit with a harder punch, perhaps, than it might otherwise do. That is definitely one through line throughout the series is anytime men are abusive or sexually abusive to women, um, the series asks us to be understanding of why someone has taken their life. Mm-hmm. So we've seen it in at least one episode now, and we'll see it before this, and we'll see it several more times throughout the series, um, stories of sexual assault and abuse and unfailingly murder she wrote wants us to side with the victims that they feel they have no recourse other than to 
um, take law into their own hands. And in this case, because Mary is ignorant of the story, the law got taken into the hands by these the guys who rally around her. One of whom, I, we should point out since we haven't yet. He has <laughs> time to point yet. that out. Yeah, would you yeah. like to do the honors? Well, in this episode, we have William Wyndham making his first appearance in Murder, She Wrote as Sam Breen, one of the guys who's friends with the dead man and looks after Mary. And actually, in that final shot that TJ and I were describing, uh, he offers his elbow to Jessica, and the two of them walk out of the barn elbow and elbow, and that's part of the freeze frame. And I think that's a really nice metaphor for what's coming, because of course, starting next season, William Wyndham will be a recurring character as Seth Hazlitt, Jessica's best friend. Yep. And I love that. So and he has a similar, like, gruff persona in this character as well. Like, you can see shades of Seth in this person, which I appreciate that we get a little bit of a harbinger of what's to come. Yeah, I think all the guys are the same. They're all, what, like 50, 60. Uh, they're all kind of gruff because they're Wyoming rancher guys. Um, they're not all ranchers, but, you know, they live on ranches and out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And um, so they, they have that sort of masculine gruffness. But then they're also obviously, like, very affectionate and paternal in in these really gentle ways. Like, one of them is an uncle to Mary, so she's his niece. The rest of them are just family friends. They obviously just feel like all of this paternal affection and need to care for her and protect her, which is really sweet, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's Seth to me. He's gruff, but there's a teddy bear inside of that. Yeah, and it's also just a testament to, in this particular episode, like this tight-knit nature of this community, which is why, you know, sometimes the justice has to go outside of the the formal institutions because the community is so tightly woven together. So I just want to add um, a little like disclaimer because as we're explaining all this sort of narratively and thematically, um, I'm like, yes, yes, this all makes sense. But like uh, in real life, I do not believe vigilantism is ever the solution. So I just, I want to just put that out there. Yes, I concur with Bridget on that 100%. So on a lighter note, I do want to make note of two things that I think are worthwhile. One is, of course, the sets where they are always sitting inside, like they sit inside and eat at the table a lot. Like there are a lot of shots of the sort of dining room. And I I chuckled to myself. I was like, what is this? An episode of Bonanza? Like the, you know, the hit Western (laughs) show from the 60s and 70s. And And it's such an unattractive dining room, too. It's like floral and lacy. Yeah. It's very much Western television. Like, that's the thing. It's like very much cut in the mold of, like, Western TV. Like, as someone who watched a lot of those shows with my grandparents and my parents, like... It always struck me that they are, um, that they had those meals together, like, en famille, when, like, presumably these guys have their own homes, right? Like, they don't right. actually live here. And yet every scene is all of, is all four guys and Jessica and Mary and Mary's fiancé sort of gather around the table together like they're a family so i think Mm -hmm. again like what you're saying it reiterates the sense of a tight-knit community but it is sort of bizarre it's like why are you guys always over here like go home don't you have homes in your own refrigerators and of course given my interest in jb's fashion we see a number of like (laughs) interesting outfit choices like a lot of browns a lot of blues like a little purple here and there and she's also wearing cowboy boots in one scene and i'm not cowboy boots but you know boots and I was just like, wow, J.D. Fletcher in Boots. That is... I totally missed that. And I'm the, supposed to be the one who calls her a shoe fetishist. Yeah, it's in the last scene when she's stepping out of the house to go confront the murderers. Like, because she's wearing boots. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. That's an interesting choice. 
What I paid attention to was that Mary is always wearing these knee-length culottes. And then she has boots that meet the, the hem, the bottom hem of the culottes. Um, in the first scene, she's wearing like a dusty rose pair. And then the next morning, it's like the exact same pair of pants, but in a different color. Uh, and I just love that because they're like slouchy culottes. Or I guess maybe today we might call them gauchos. And in the scene where they go to talk to the marshal, uh, I did notice Jessica's fashion. She's wearing this gray pashmina and it's wrapped really elegantly around her. Oh, I love it. And it's really long. That's why it caught my attention because it hangs all the way down past her skirt in the back. Mm-hmm. That's a really unusual for her to wear something like that. Yeah, I like that. I like that appearance too. And I also, I, I mean, some, I know sometimes in these episodes, you and I have been less than impressed by the sort of sleuth work or the, the piece, how the pieces ultimately fit together. But I actually thought that was one of the stronger things about this episode. And thinking about it in terms of, like, as it as Murder on the Orient Express as an intertext is what really helps, I think, it to land. Because part of what leads Jessica to realize that it's not, that couldn't be, because the person who did the killing had to have been ambidextrous and tall, just because of how, of Carl's own features. And the fact that he was killed by a blow, like, allegedly by a blow to the head. But as it turns out, that none of those are true, really. Because he was, yeah. as we said, he was killed by all four of them. And the doctor hit him in the head after he was hanged to make it appear as if he had been hit before being hanged. And obviously the doctor being left-handed is where the ambidextrousness comes in. And obviously all four men are able to do it together. Because he was hit by a left-handed blow, but the noose was tied by a right-handed knot. Yep. Hence the ambidextrous assumption. But I have to tell you, you know, when, when Carl's first found... It's a there's like a funny moment where they leave him hanging in the barn and the marshal walks in and he's like, why is this guy still hanging? And Jessica's like, so you could see everything. And he's like, OK, well, I've seen it. Get him down. Like he doesn't want to take pictures yeah, right. or do any sort of investigative work of the crime scene. But they leave the dock with the body. And, you know, having seen this episode, I know the solution. But even if I hadn't seen the episode immediately, I would have been like, the guy's just going to tamper with the evidence. Like, why would you leave this doctor with the body when he's one of five possible suspects, right? right? There's a storm. There's a, we're in a closed environment. It's remote. Like, obviously one of these five people had to have done it. And then one of them is going to be the one who investigates. Like, that doesn't make sense. And I also appreciated that there's that moment when Jessica goes to the docks and he makes a point of saying that if there's a doctor, only one doctor within like 200 miles, they automatically go by dock. Yeah. Um, Very Western. Another, Yep, very Western. And, you know, they have this moment where she goes to his office and she that's one of the pieces that falls into place is that Carl, like, learned from the doctoral records that the father was sterile. And that's how he could confirm and prove that Mary wasn't his daughter, right. biologically speaking. Right. So I thought that was also a nice piece. Like I, like I said, I really enjoyed the sleuth work and how that all, all the pieces fell together. It wasn't... Figuring out phone crossings or whatever happened and we're off to kill the wizard or, you know. You keep going back to that. Like, you were really angry by that because you've mentioned it several times since then. I know. I'm very, I'm so very perplexed. It's because I don't understand it. That's really annoying. So I like (laughs) it when things are, or when things are explicable. So that's what I appreciated about the sleuth work that Jessica undertakes in this episode. And at one point, um, she even, she's awakened in the night and opens her window and finds a noose hanging outside her window it's really sinister and menacing. And because she's Jessica, she's completely unruffled. She says, ah, I'm making someone nervous. 
I know. Which I think just reiterates, like, what a great detective she is, right? She's like, obviously, I'm on the right trail or people wouldn't be trying to threaten me. And she's not even threatened. She's like, right, fine. Yeah, and she's she is determined to get to the truth because the doc is like, don't, like, you please don't. You're going to unlearn things that should be left alone as they're, she's, as, toward the, as we're racing toward the finale and she's marching toward the barn. You know, she yeah. says sort of nonchalantly, I'm going to go look in the barn to see what else I might be able to find. And I, it's a, again, it's one of those moments where she is literally cool as a cucumber. Like, she's just... She is, even when she confronts all four guys and says, I know what you did. And there's a moment where we're supposed to think, like, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to turn on her? And she, she even says that, right? Like, are you going to have to silence me now that I know the truth? Right. And she's kind of like, you're not going to do that. That's not what's going to happen here. And indeed, Sam Breen, played by William Wyndham, is like, okay, we'll turn ourselves in. Yeah, and I mean, that's such a nice, like, reversal of the usual pattern in Murder, She Wrote, where the murderer's like, no, I'm going to kill you because you can't, because you, you know too much. But here, obviously, they're men of honor in their own way. Again, not to valorize vigilantism, that's not what I'm saying. But they are, they have their own moral code that they hold themselves accountable to. They mm-hmm. are not going to kill a woman just because she's learned the truth. Like, that's not the kind of people they are. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a nice little layer to their personalities and to their characters that you know, we might not have been led to expect. But we we often get, I just want to clarify, because we often get um, people who are caught and then immediately confess and tell the whole thing and apologize and turn themselves right. in. It's not, it's not very often that they're like, well, I'll kill you. I mean, like we saw in the last episode, he's like, well, I'm going to kill you. And then he was like, okay, shucks, you got me. <laughs> so I do, I mean, that is part of the cozy feel of the show, right? right. Is that like people are usually like, yeah. You're right. I did. We'll turn yeah, in. I guess what I was getting yeah. at is it just had an emotional weight to it because of the nature of the crime. And, totally. And their, yeah. And their motivation. And that they, And because there's four of them. Yeah. There's four really strong guys and there's one Jessica standing there calling them out on the truth. Like it is threatening, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, No, we're not gonna hurt you. Yeah. That's the, enough of this. Yeah, she yeah. is the she is the Gary Cooper in this in this episode. You know, she's the one who's Doing the thing that nobody well, else Well, don't do. tell the marshal that, because that's what he wanted to be. Yeah, he wanted to be Coop. Oh, he's can't get over <laughs> He keeps calling him Coop. It's like, ugh. It's like, enough. <laughs> enough. We haven't talked about um, fun facts or guest stars. I mean, do you want to give us a quick spiel of the, the more notable? I mean, there's no one other than Seth. Like, Excuse me. Yes, there is. There is Noah Beery Jr., who's from the Rockford Files. He's Doc Wallace. See, I knew I could goad you into doing this if I said something <laughs> dismissive. Carl Meston is played by Clue Gallagher, who's in, like, tons of stuff, especially in the 80s. Like, one of my favorite episodes of MacGyver. And then also, like, can I mention, he was in the 1964 movie The Killers with Ronald Reagan. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people in this. As I said, that's why I manipulated you into telling the truth. I also, fun facts, because I was really interested in the fact that Sally and Carl arm wrestle and, like, that that's a thing they wrote in just to show that Sally was left-handed so that she could possibly be a suspect once we know and that... she was strong enough to do it. And that she was strong enough, right, since Carl was struck by a left-handed blow. Um, so I was like, what it, was arm wrestling really popular in the 80s? So I went and did some research, and um, did you know the first professional arm wrestling organization was founded in the 1950s? I did not know that. And the World Arm Wrestling Federation was founded in 1977. Today it has 82 member countries. I mean, I do remember, I, to be fair, I mean, I do remember people in my high school arm and grade school arm wrestling a lot. So yeah, me too. So maybe it was just a thing. It was a popular thing in the 80s. 
In fact, there's a movie. So this episode came out in 1985, and two years later, there would be a movie with Sylvester Stallone, the plot of which hinges upon arm wrestling competitions. Do you know this movie? It's called Over the Top. Have you ever seen it? I... I have not seen it. Yeah, he's like a trucker and he needs money to get his kid back uh, after he like loses custody of his kid and his dead wife's dad is like keeping the kid from him. So his way of like making himself a success is to earn money in arm wrestling competitions. See, we need to, you know, there's a new book out called like the Complete Cultural Guide to the Golden Girls where they keep track of all the cultural references. We should do something similar to, to that, like a culture guide to the to Murder, She Wrote, where we talk about arm wrestling culture in the 1980s. Like... <laughs> <laughs> i would love to see jb arm wrestle for what it's worth me too she could kick some ass i have no doubt your arm wrestle sally yeah all right well that's all i got for you folks that's all i've got too so to sort of wrap up then i'd say that what i enjoyed most about this episode was how neatly it ties together both its kind of generic references to the western but also the thematics of the western and how nicely it ties that together with JB's usual kind of like moral authority. Like I think that it presents us with a very well-constructed episode that is a also well-constructed package of television and film illusions. Yeah, I mean, it's a really sort of dark and sinister conclusion to a season that, while it's had a lot of murder in it, has actually been pretty lighthearted. Mm-hmm. That things always turn out okay. I mean, this is a really bizarre conclusion to a season that they knew was a hit, right? At this point, by the time this episode came out, they knew they had a stellar hit. Uh, And I think it's really telling that they took the risk to end on a kind of dark note. And that final shot of everybody walking out of the barn, freeze-framing, I think it leaves a question to be answered. And it's, it's not a narrative cliffhanger because we won't revisit this episode and these characters next season, but it is a kind of thematic cliffhanger in that things are not finished and there's more to come. Just wait for September. Yeah, I like that. It's walking into the future, uncertainly into the future. Unfortunately, you do not have to wait to September uh, to get more of the Cabot Cove Gazette. That is correct. We will be back next week with our next episode. But for now... Uh, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And thank you so much for listening. That's going to do it for season one. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.